John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 877.EX1508, certificate number 53464, O'Shaughnessy Dam. Yosemite National Park lies west of the line of the Sierra Nevada Mountains in Middle Eastern California. You love the city of San Francisco, I know. I left my heart there. We talk about it all the time. And I think my kid left a hoodie on the trolley. <laughs> <laughs> and my heart. <laughs> um, have you ever, uh, have you ever had a glass of San Francisco's clean, pure tap water? It's famous, right? Is it, or is that New York? There's some city that's always talking about how good their tap water is. Uh, is it the Bay Area or Frisco, as they like to call it? There, New York does love to claim that they have very clean, delicious water, and they're not wrong. But San Francisco is uh is it aces is pretty famous for its delicious water yeah new york new york water you know it comes down comes down from up high gravity fed water system bringing that pure water down into the bagel making plants Mm -hmm. denver's got good water um i have a kid that will not drink the tap water in pretty much any city but seattle like just cannot handle whatever the slightly different set of Salts, salts are that makes water tap water taste different. It's kind of a bummer on vacation. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think uh, San Francisco, given that it is in California, where water is, as we've discussed on the show many times, a constant issue. Um, and the water that they drink in L.A. basically has been filtered through a raccoon's butt. Uh, before it even gets into the state of California, by law, <laughs> they so it, it divide the pipe divides into like a hundred little parallel miniature pipes, each of which has an unhappy raccoon mounted, <laughs> and then it reconverges right after and, it crosses the state line, and then c- comes out of your tap, you know, after a long clanking. The sort funny of thing is, it's, it's just pipe. a government make work program for the raccoons. Yeah, there's no actual health benefits. If you think about what would have happened to those raccoons, though. Keep Long off, unemployment lines. Keep them off the streets. Yeah. It's important. It's like either night baseball or like a never-ending enema. We have delicious water here in the Northwest. I think it's good. It comes right from the, the lofty snows. You can see the mountains from here. And the snows melt and nature sows the seeds. We grow the seeds. Sometimes I take a glass of water out to my deck and I look up at the snows on Mount Rainier and I think, 
This is you tomorrow. Thank you. Snows. Thank you, Snows of Mount Ida. Thank you, Tahoma. But San Francisco also gets their drinking water from... Mount Rainier? From Mount Rainier. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It comes in a drinking (laughs) straw that's been laid end to end. No, uh, San Francisco has a a kind of unique uh, water system, water delivery system, that... um, the, today's show is an example of a uh, Bader-Meinhof moment for me. We're recording this on Wednesday. On Monday, I was recording my other top-rated and legendary podcast, Roderick on the Line, with my friend Merlin oh, Mann. That sounds good. I'm going to have to check that out, John. You should. You should. Uh, <laughs> you should check it out immediately. But we were talking. Merlin lives Would in- you recommend that people pause this entry right now mm. and turn on uh, Roderick on the Line that aired about a month ago? No. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. You should start. You should at the end of this omnibus, start at the beginning and listen to every single one of the six hundred Roderick on the lines in order. Could you do some kind of flaming lips thing where you play this episode simultaneously with the episode of Roderick on the line that contains the Batter Meinhof uh, 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 synchronicity in a parking garage in Austin? Yes, on, on boom boxes. Yes, yes. for South by Southwest. I, I do believe you should be able to do that. But Merlin, who lives in San Francisco. Uh, we were having a conversation and he mentioned the Hetch Hetchy, uh, reservoir. Did you say what, what And I said, what, what I would I say said, that. Say what now? People would love that. The who? Because I thought that the water in San Francisco came through that sort of riparian cluster work of swamps and, and river uh, estuaries that flows into the bay there in the, yeah, in the south go, and east bay goes through sacramento and is this whole bananas thing and and merlin who uh, is not an infrastructure nerd like you and i knew at least that it came through a uh, an aqueduct from the hetch hetchy reservoir and i thought well what an interesting thing that i didn't know and so i started to read up on it and then yesterday you wrote me and said uh one of our patreon supporters has requested that we do an episode on the O'Shaughnessy Dam. And I said, O'Shaughnessy Dam, O'Shaughnessy Dam. Why does that ring a bell? Is it because I read about it just yesterday that the O'Shaughnessy Dam is the dam that retains the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir? And I said, well, let me do that show, Ken. It was uh, Kathy, by the way, who requested O'Shaughnessy Dam. Thank you, Kathy. Which I thought was, that's just a thing I thought you said when a, Big Irish guy punches you. O'Shaughnessy, damn. O'Shaughnessy, damn. Um, it is a, uh, it's a Mississippi goddamn. I don't know what that means. It's all right. You're, you're forgiven. Uh, I, uh, I also thought that, that O'Shaughnessy, damn, would be a bad topic when I saw it first. Do you remember when Kathy originally proposed it? Do you have a date? Well, we haven't recorded in about a month, so I think we've had these for a month or two yeah. in the hopper. Right. So it's just a complete, like, just the electricity of the moment. And you were like... Everybody's talking. You were like, Kathy, you, I'm sure you're lovely, but this is boring. It's just some dam somewhere. And then Everybody's suddenly... talking about the... And then suddenly the universe... Tuolumne River. Just smacked you in the head with the O'Shaughnessy Dam. But the O'Shaughnessy Dam is interesting, not just because we find dams interesting... Dams are pretty interesting. And it's not interesting just because we love San Francisco and want them to have clean water. Is it a hydroelectric dam? It is a hydroelectric as well as a drinking water supplier dam. 
the the uh, the O'Shaughnessy Dam supplies the or the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir supplies eighty percent of San Francisco's drinking water. San Francisco is one of twenty percent comes from Dasani. Twenty twenty percent is yeah is uh it is um is, San Pellegrino fizzy, fizzy water right? Yeah. What is that stuff called that everybody drinks? Uh, the, the, yeah, garbage. Um, 80% of the drinking water and over 20% of the electricity to the city of San Francisco. So it is a, it's a big part of San Francisco culture. San Francisco is one of only six towns in the United States that is not required to filter their drinking water. Wait, there's no treatment. It's they, so good coming out of that dam. They treat coming it over that dam. You know, they treat they treat it with. Uh, I think they they run it through some UV light just to kill whatever seagull poop. And your friends put like ayahuasca in it. Yeah, sure. that's right. For sure, they do. They uh, they they then truck it out to Coachella and use it in all their ceremonies. Use it to to water their weed gardens. Uh, so it's it's pristine. And uh, delicious drinking water. And there's a reason for that, which is that the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir is within the Yosemite National Park. Wait, San Francisco's water comes from a national park? Yes. You'd think that the pure, untrammeled, unmolested waters of our national parks should stay in our national parks to be drunk by... Elks and pooped in by egrets. That's my position. Well, your position, you are not alone in that position. You're, is you're, this me and your ayahuasca <laughs> lacing friends? Well, it is a... Um, like, it, isn't it bad? Is there, Are there environmental costs to Yosemite for like... For there being a... a massive a, dam a, on, a on the river there? Before? Yes. Yes, there are, Ken. And it, it, it was a controversy uh, in its time. In fact, one of the first real... National and and by that I mean American national environmental controversies. Um, What's the era here? It's just like, well, we're talking about the turn of the last century, so nineteenth into twentieth century. Um, Post John Muir, but not much. Or not much. A- Muir plays a big role in this whole in all these shenanigans. Yosemite was first uh, discovered by Europeans right around the. California gold rush. Um, Europeans pouring into... To free climb El Capitan. <laughs> to free climb El Capitan. Previously only uh, indigenous people were... super hard to get there and super hard to free climb it even then, especially with their technologies. Their moccasins? Um, yeah, it was a... Uh, you know, there was a gold rush. And you know, interesting to think that, that, um, that Yosemite... No European would have even laid eyes on it until the 1850s. Weird, right? Yeah, and the first. What was Yosemite Sam called back then? He was just called Sam. That's crazy. Yeah, it's quicker to say. Yeah, in fact, I think he was probably known as Samuel uh, until until he had did, the later connection. Did something bad happen to him at Yosemite, <laughs> and that's when he started saying varmint a lot? Yeah, something did. Uh, he tried to free climb El Capitan and fell and bonked his head. That's why his. That's why his head is that weird. Um, Black color in the places where his red hair is not like he might be wearing a domino mask. It's not clear. It's it's uh, it's actually scalding from all the steam that comes out of his ears. Uh, probably yeah. and all the bruising from falling off El Capitan. But the first, you know, the first visitors to Yosemite um, were, of course, astonished. I mean, the first European visitors. It had long been a a uh, an area. A, a, 
it was a sort of a hunting ground for the Miwok Indians who, you know, were sort of all of that central kind of Sierra Nevada area of California, different, different tribal relationships. The tribe that lived, um, that lived up in Yosemite itself, uh, was called the Awanichis. And the word Yosemite was, was given to the park by a, by a, uh, an early white adventurer. And it was a mistranslation. Um, Yosemite, he thought was Awanichi for grizzly bear. And that gets, uh, th- that idea is still, you know, sure. kind of connected to the grizzly idea. Grizzly bear valley. I think you'll, you'll see a lot of you know, brochures that say, no, no, no. Yosemite means grizzly bear. I hope it's an embarrassing mistake and it means like, um, Tired old woman valley or something. No, in fact, in fact, uh, the Miwok Indians referred to the Awanichis as murderers. And does Yosemite mean <laughs> Yosemite that means, other crappy murdering tribe? It means they are killers. <laughs> oh wow! So it's really a warning. It's pretty. Stay out. It's a pretty metal name for a national park, though. It's super metal. Super metal. So stay out of Yosemite, even today. It didn't work, sadly. It. Uh, it was so beautiful there that uh, visitors began to flood in, I guess. Well, the, so the, uh, you know, the, the Europeans that wrote, or I'm sorry, Europeans, the American, uh, the white Americans that went to Yosemite during the, the gold rush of European extraction and then wrote like, you know, uh, effervescent, effluvient, uh, Effusive. There it is. Effulgent. Effulgent. They wrote effulgent uh, essays about how beautiful it was there and how unspoilt. And you're getting into the age of photography, so people could start to see these vistas and be like, whoa, this is like better than Switzerland. Right. And it was <clears throat> an era in the United States, sort of po- post-Walden, where and, and during that American school of painters where they were painting these wonderful vistas of the Hudson River Valley, there was a new awareness in the in the... 1850s and 1860s of the of American natural abundance as something other than just a resource to be exploited. Look at all those trees to cut down. And again, this is always it, it's always initiated. A, it's the province of of the lazy rich, right? Who can afford to look upon the the sequoias and not think, boy, if I cut that down, I would make a bunch of money. It's always, you know, either the lazy rich or somebody who's running away from a bad marriage and wearing a buckskin jacket with fringe and going, why not both? <laughs> exactly. If, if, you had, if I had a ton of money in a bad marriage, that's what I would do. But no less a person than Abraham Lincoln. What? Um, yep. Set aside. Lincoln cameo. Ooh, yes. ooh, ooh. <laughs> Yosemite initially as um, it, there was a land grant or a grant that Yosemite be be preserved as a, as a, uh, well, there was no such thing as a national park. Right. That's a grant administration innovation, right? Yellowstone right. Is, a, is still a decade or two off. So Yellowstone was the first national park in 1872, but it, but the, but the idea of preserving Yellowstone as a park, some kind of federal public land was a, was a product of having originally set Yosemite aside. Oh, it's the trailblazing property where it's like, this is so good. We need some kind of special status for this. Exactly. And it, and, and the, a national park hadn't yet been conceived, but it was established as a, as a kind of grant 
um, territory, and it was uh, it was administered initially, or, the, or, or his title was the Guardian of the Grant, Ooh. by a man named Galen Clark, who was a who was a guy who his wife died young, and at age forty three, he uh, contracted tuberculosis. And you're describing everyone in the 19th century. <laughs> the doctor said, you know, go somewhere where the air is clean because you're either going to die or, or not. He needed dry, dry desert air for his lungs. And so he put on a buckskin jacket with fringe and headed West and found himself. No pants. He, it was just a long buckskin jacket. He didn't need pants was... then. No, you did need pants because, um, because there were a lot of mosquitoes mm. in this region then and now. But he ended up there and found, you know, kind of an unspoilt Yosemite and became a great advocate for it and someone who, um, you know, became a national figure as a result of of his administration and identification with uh, with Yosemite. And he's the one that discovered the, the Grand Sequoia and popularized them, wrote the first book about the Sequoia. Um, Are there sequoias on what is now Yosemite National Park, or was he just going all over California? Uh, well, yeah the 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 famous sequoia, the most famousest of all the sequoia, the um, oh yeah yeah the the Wawona the, tree, which is the one. That but, uh, but this is not the General Sherman or whatever. Those are over by the coast, right? Somewhere. Yeah, they're the ones that are. But the Wawona tree is the one in Yosemite that they cut. Oh, the hole! In? They cut a hole in and drove like uh, wagons and trucks and cars through. You can't drive through it anymore. This well, used to be a proper country. The, the, the problem with the Wawona tree, at least, they cut that tunnel in 1881. And uh, if you can, if you can believe it, driving cars and wagons through a tree uh, is not good for the tree. Is not good for the tree. And in, in 1969, uh, the tree fell. As a result of a of a big snowfall, I never should have got that Wawona Forever tattoo. <laughs> I really regret it. This is one where I'm going to acknowledge that joke, but I'm acknowledging it under duress. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not even a joke; it's a reference. It's a pop culture it's a, reference. It's a Gen X pop culture reference. You can you, you can look it up if you're you too old or too rewarded. young for that. The tree was 2,100 years old, but it didn't survive even 100 years of of uh, European Americans. Presumably the first 2000 years was having many fewer wagons driven through it. And it probably thought that all the time. Come boy, swing for my apples. Don't drive a wagon through my trunk. But there's a, you know, there's a grove of giant sequoias at, at called the Mariposa Grove. And, you know, these were sort of Galen Clark's, um, they were, well, they were magnetic trees. He would go and hug them and it would, and they would remove all of his black bile. These were his improvements. Do we know anything about what the local tribes that wanted to live and hunt here thought? I guess they're just out of luck. Well, we do know. I mean, they, um, these were hunting grounds, uh, and, and, uh, like wonderful sort of grass valleys that were actually managed forest in the sense that for thousands of years, the native Americans had been doing controlled burns hmm. of what would be, what would normally be forested valleys in order to keep the valleys clear for to, to have as hunting grounds, so they were they were not, um, you know, it's there's a lot of snow up there in the winter. I I don't think that they were full time uh, 
a, a place that you would build a like a full a year round community. But of course, there were yeah, but nomadic people. Yeah, um, but they were you know they were well used. And when white Europeans came, there were people living throughout the what is now Yosemite Park, and there was the inevitable the several decades of encounter where it was a question of whether or not the uh, Native Americans should be there at all. There was actually a uh, a war, the Mariposa War, where some San Franciscans mounted a posse and went up there because the Native Americans kept uh, bonking wow. people on the head in the middle of the night. So-called liberals, huh? <laughs> and, uh, Lim- I know, San Lim- Francisco. Limousine liberals. Tell you what, it was there. The second there's a homeless guy on your street. Their school board went up there. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, and, and, uh, did a lot of murdering and, uh, and depopulating. Mm. There was, a after it became a park, there was a, a long period where, um, there were some villages within the park and the attitude was that the, that the Miwok Indians could be sort of not, not not um on display in the park exactly but you know creating part of its baskets rich cultural and, uh, heritage. yeah like like part of the tourism industry they did, you know they did that when Disneyland opened they'd bring in like native people and have them just kind of chill and do dances and stuff they i think they I'm, don't do that anymore i feel like i saw <laughs> that even in the 70s Oof. yeah it's uh, that's possible yeah yeah pretty sure and now then tomorrowland they should bring in real aliens too it was a it was the thing about Yosemite is even even after the Transcontinental Railroad made San Francisco a destination, and even after the Transcontinental Railroad made San Francisco uh, an accessible destination for Americans, and Yosemite had already been a uh, you know a very popularized idea in the American mind, it was still super hard to get there from San Francisco. Yeah. It's hard to get there from San Francisco now. Um, I've never been. I have never been. Is that either. true? And it drives me crazy. It's so easy to go to California and not go to Yosemite. Yeah. Like you go to the stuff around the Bay you go to the stuff around Southern California. Not only is it easy, but I have been to all four corners around Yosemite and have just never gotten in. Um, because there's no road from one side to the other. It's hard to be on one side and go, oh, we'll just cut across through Yosemite. You really have to go in and then come back out. And I've never done it, and I'm, and I'm bummed because it is now, uh, uh, in 2016, for the first time, they went over 5 million visitors a year. And by 2020, you needed reservations to visit Yosemite. In my experience, they're pretty good at managing that stuff better than you would think. They know when to, you know, shut parking lots off to cars, switch people to shuttles. The National Park System does a great job of keeping those places humming even when they're slammed. Yeah, but it's just, it adds to the scariness. We were driving past Yellowstone last summer, if you remember, and uh, we were up in, in, um, in, I give up. Big Sky Country. Yeah, that's right. It would Wyoming. Been, nope. Montana. Yep. I don't know where you were. Missoula. No. Billings. Yes. What do I win? You win the, it only took you five questions to get to Billings. I was sitting here 
thinking Billings, 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 because I have a lot of friends from there that are super mad if they're listening to the show. But thankfully, they don't have electricity in Billings, so they're not likely to be listening. They'll get podcasts one of these days. But we were in Billings and, and looking at the – there are all these online, like, how to get to Yellowstone kind of, you know, in-the-moment apps. Like, is this road crowded right now? Is this road closed? Are there any – Buffalo or people from Idaho trying to kill wolves, you know, the whole, it tells you everything. And it just looked like, it looked like a big deal just to get in and get out. A vortex. So we avoided Yellowstone and I have not been there either. I have not been to Yosemite or Yellowstone, the two great capstones of the American National Park. You're just going in alphabetical order. You're going to all the parts and you're going to get to Y one of these days. And then then you'll finally go to Zion and you'll be done. It's a long way off. Um, it was, it was John Muir who, um, who really sort of made, uh, Yosemite his special, his special case, right? He was going to, he loved it there and he was a member of this new generation of preservationist and Within the United States environmental movement, there really are two two sides. And we're going to talk about both sides here, Ken. So a lot of our listeners who don't want to talk about both sides, they should probably punch out now. Uh, We're talking about both sides. Of of, which particular issue? Of uh, the environmental movement. Should there be an environment? We're going to... Yes or no. We're going to argue both sides. The people that that think there should not be an environment have just as much right to say so, Ken. I don't know what they're breathing. Am I going to, which side am I arguing? Well, now this is a good question here, here, and I'm going to lay it out for you. The difference or the, I'm sorry, the, um, you have a big kind of white beard like John Muir. Maybe you you should be the environmental side. Thank you. It's not that big yet, but it will be. be. I'll be the evil industrialist. You should see Galen Clark's beard at the end of his life. It's, it's quite, it's quite lovely. He, and as a young man, he's very handsome. He looks like a sort of a, 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 like a father, John Misty with consumption. Which is again, Father John Misty looks like he has consumption. Yeah, the old, older uh, he looks like an Old Testament prophet he does. at the end of his life. He does. This is which amazing. Is what I hope to one day be. But the the um, the the conflict in early environmentalism is a conflict that still exists, and that is between the conservationists and the preservationists. Well, I don't know if I could say the difference. Well. Conservationists uh, basically believe in preserving uh, natural wonder for the for the consumption of the greatest good, for the use of the greatest good, to serve the most people by selectively managing the forest, by having boating on the lakes, by by making making the parks accessible mm-hmm. like like you're talking about Yosemite Yellowstone they have uh they have a lot of infrastructure infrastructure to to allow the greatest number of people to enjoy the park and use the park and that would include logging the forests as as needed. ecologically appropriate That's or, right. or even if we just want some cheaper wood and there are, are there lots of institutions in uh in America like the forest service is a conservationist group. They don't want, they want to preserve the forests, but they log the forests rather than allow the forests to be just plowed under, 
right? They're, they are trying to strike a balance between preserving it in, a, in as natural a way as they can, but also to derive the greatest benefit from it. And the idea, and within conservationism, the idea is that you preserve it for future generations, right? That's there too. There's, it's not just use it to the greatest good within our lifetimes. Um, it's got to be sustainable, whatever you do. Gifford Pinchot, who figures in this story a lot, and there's a there's a very large national forest here in the in Washington State named mm-hmm. for him. Um, he said conservation is the greatest good to the greatest number for the longest time. What and did uh, what did Bronson Pinchot say about Bronson Pinchot said? Uh, he said, "Now stick, we now stick, we do the dance of joy. Stick this banana in your tailpipe." That's what he said. Uh, and 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 it's a it's a principle called conservation through use. Now, preservationists and John Muir is the is the kind of the figurehead of this, and the Sierra Club was founded on this idea. Uh, preservationists believe you should keep it pristine, as natural as possible, to be enjoyed. Only by people that can hike in and you know leave no trace, right? This is the this is the barrier campfire crowd, um, no picnic shelters. And there's a lot, you know, and and, and that is a um, that's a, and it premised on the idea that once it's been logged once, it's never pristine again. There's no way to to get an old growth forest a second time. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. And the, there are there are kind of two national groups. The Sierra Club was founded in 1892 by John Muir, but there's an older group founded by Teddy Roosevelt called the Boone and Crockett Club, <laughs> which was formed in 1887. And Boone and Crockett is a um, is a conservationist organization. Sierra Club is a preservationist organization. I think it's funny that uh, da- Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, who probably didn't have very enlightened or modern thoughts about ecology, are this almost uh, not. They just spend a lot of time outside, yeah. basically. Of all the people, of all the Americans we can think of in history, they're the ones who were in the forest a lot. If you think about that buckskin crowd, uh, I mean, yeah. Hat tip to somebody that's willing to to put what they own on a donkey and walk into the you know into a world. It seems a lot more difficult than my life in uh, like a, on a hundred different axes. Yeah, they they probably had some some pretty revisionist ideas, but um, or revanchist ideas, but they also every night built that little fire and. I mean, I'm not a member of the Boone and Crockett Club. Is it still extant? The yes, Boone? Oh. absolutely. Um, and their idea, Boone I and Crockett. I feel like by mentioning it, they're going to send us memberships now. Yeah, well, somebody will absolutely somebody will write in and go. I'm a card carrying member. I'm, I've been a Boone since twenty for since 1987, and I hope to be a Crockett soon. You sent me that email the other day from the person that was like, "Oh, I'm in the." I'm in the Knights Templar of uh, <laughs> right. or the Free Templars of Washington State. By the time I read those letters, I don't remember the actual referent. Yeah. So I'm like, what is even happening? I have aphasia every time I read an omnibus. Yeah. Uh, if you think about uh, organizations like Ducks Unlimited, um, where you think Ducks Unlimited, that is a confusing name. They are about preserving wildlife in order that you 
hunt right. them. And I, I want to limit them myself. Therefore, they should be unlimited until I get there. But what B- B- Boone and Crockett, and this is a result, that this came from Teddy Roosevelt's experience of going out and shooting 100 rhinoceroses and then having a come to Jesus moment when he realized, wait, if everyone <laughs> shot 100 rhinoceroses... <laughs> There would be no rhinoceroses. To his credit, he didn't say, well, I'm glad I got here first. <laughs> so what? Uh, so one of the doctrines of the sort of Boone and Crockett conservationist mentality is, um, is the fair chase hunting idea, which is... Tell me what a fair chase hunting is. Well, you should not hunt wolves from a helicopter with a machine gun because wolves do not have helicopters and a machine gun that's right you should i mean they don't have they don't have a rifle either but we'll overlook that you should be able to hunt but it should be hard (laughs) or it should be at least harder than buying this meat at the supermarket right there's a there's a kind of and i think people within a sort of fair chase hunting mentality are going to yeah they're going to be able to Make the finer distinction between like, is that fair or is that not fair? It also might be more fun. It's a hundred percent more my fun. And went, I say that not as a hunter. But. I, I'm not a hunter, but my son went salmon fishing last week in Oregon. And, uh, it was just kind of one of these boats where, you know, a bunch of Midwestern guys cracked a beer and somebody else ran the, the poles for them. And my son was like, well, we're not really fishing. Yeah. He was also seasick the whole time. Yeah. He's also a kid. Who, who you had to explain what a peachy folder is to today. <laughs> he wanted to... He wanted to be thrown overboard with a spear. Now that's fishing. Like Hemingway. That's what Hemingway would have done. <laughs> oh, for sure. Hemingway would have sat there with a beer while somebody else managed his lines until the camera was pointed at him. So the Crockett and Tubbs Club says... The, the Crockett and Tubbs and the Sierra Club were were approaching the these early years of conservation and preservation from two very different mentalities. And, you know, when the original, um, when the, when Yosemite began to be, uh, when it was recognized that Yosemite needed to be a separate and kind of new, new entity Mm -hmm. protected by the federal government. Of course there were, um, there were homesteaders in there by that point. I mean, people had been in there uh, for for decades. And to, had today, been, their descendants run the gift shop. Well, that I'm sure there are people who maybe they'll write in <laughs> who believe that they were unfairly denied their homestead. California um, State at this point, yeah, right after the gold rush, yeah, yeah. 1850. Um, in 1872, uh, the homesteaders in Yosemite, um, as a result of the some of the work by uh, Galen Clark and his ilk, their homesteads were revoked, and they took those cases to the Supreme Court, and the su- Supreme Court confirmed that their homesteads that the government could invalidate their homesteads. And that was one of the first of many, many of these kind of property rights suits where you still have people in the West who believe the federal government tyrannical use of public land. Yeah. That they can't, they can't keep us from grazing our sheep uh, on public land. And there were a lot of sheep herders in Yosemite and their sheep were 
decimating the environment. And at one point, actually, um, a regiment of Buffalo soldiers, American black uh, infantry, were sent there to to keep the sheep herders from uh, from occupying Yosemite. So it was really wow. it was really a malheur. How, no, how come there's no movie about this like race war? <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and uh, you know, and everybody, of course, was was uh, killing the Indians, but right. right and left. Ken, today's show is sponsored by Shopify. Now, I know Shopify is more than a store. I know it connects you with customers. It helps you drive sales, and it helps you manage your day to day. But, but tell me, what is Shopify? Yeah, it's not just your online storefront. Like this is all the resources that you need to run. A small business stuff that you know would have been beyond the grasp of a small business like explaining to me what my product is well hopefully you already know that <laughs> helping me develop my service scaling your business reaching customers online because it, it integrates with social media apps oh, that's cool um synchronizing online and in-person sales it's all the behind the scenes stuff that's too. actually important online and in-person sales detailed reporting of conversion rates profit margins uh and it grows with you no matter what your business is I mean, am I too small to use Shopify? No, it's for upstarts, startups, established businesses alike. These are the kind of tools that used to be only for the big boys, but now businesses of any size can enjoy with Shopify. Can I like integrate it with other apps, third-party stuff? Yes, all that is super easy. They let you accept all major payment methods. They integrate with thousands of third-party apps. So no matter what you're doing, on-demand printing, accounting, you want chatbots, like it's all there. So what do I do? If I want to start uh, turning the power of Shopify to benefit me and my products. If you want to join the over 2 million businesses powered by Shopify, whether first sale or full scale, go to shopify.com slash omnibus. That's all lowercase omnibus. For a free 14-day trial, then you'll get full access to the whole Shopify suite of features. So you're saying if I go to Shopify today and type in Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash omnibus lowercase right now, I'll get a free 14-day trial? Yes. Start growing your business today with Shopify. Shopify.com slash lowercase omnibus. Um, but it really then became a, a, a Teddy Roosevelt joint <laughs> Yosemite National Park a Teddy Roosevelt joint <laughs> Muir took Roosevelt to on a camping trip and convinced him that what had been what had happened what had happened was um you know Lincoln had declared it a, a national area but it was being administered by the state of California and the state of California was not doing a super they they were using a, cons, a conservationist mentality which included like you know letting people open hot dog stands and trying to you know trying to turn it into a playground yeah muir convinced roosevelt although it was a national um grant that that the us government needed to resume authority over the whole area and and kind of call it, declare it a national park. And actually, this was the uh, the thing that 
instigated the formation of the National Park Service. That didn't happen for a little while later. But the idea that the federal government needed an entity to manage its national parks. There was no such service. The Interior Department didn't do that kind of stuff yet. Not yet. Um, and the the Interior Department figures in the story um, quite a bit. So let's direct our attention now to uh, to the Tuolumne River, which is... Is that in Yellowstone? Or the, sorry, Yosemite? The, the Tuolumne starts in Yosemite and is... Um, the river starts at about 8,000 feet and is a tumbling, beautiful little brook that ran down through uh, a canyon that a, that a lot of the people that saw it firsthand believed was as beautiful as anything in Yosemite. Um, an unspoilt natural, uh, natural canyon that, you know, had a valley floor that was uh, these these gorgeous meadows, so, a, a couple of the tallest waterfalls in the United States, um, an abundant and verdant mountain garden. Was um, it off the beaten path enough that so it not, wasn't visited a lot? Or? Yeah, so not part of what we think of as Yosemite that you that valley. has all the yeah. the the hot stuff in it. It was a separate valley over. Uh, a, a, a different a different river in a different valley, but part of the entire park and and kind of the even more unspoiled than uh, than Yellowstone Valley because it hadn't attracted all these hot dog vendors and and bearded uh, free climbers, <laughs> and it was um, even in the late nineteenth century recognized that San Francisco was growing leaps and bounds and that. Um, that there needed to be, this was, this was an era of big municipal projects and they were looking for a source of abundant clean water. Uh, at the time there was a monopoly, uh, the Spring Valley Water Company had a monopoly over the water provided to San Francisco and they were price gouging. Um, Spring Valley Water Company evolved to become the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. <laughs> Uh, and so the, you know, the people of San Francisco, which were increasingly sort of feeling their oats, were looking about throughout the Sierra Nevadas, like where, where is our uh, pristine reservoir going to be? Where are we going to get our, our delicious mountain water? And they identified uh, the Tuolumne River and in particular, the, the uh, Hetch Hetchy Valley and Hetch Hetchy is just a um, I don't mean just, but it's uh, it's also a Miwok term that means gra- valley, valley, grassy valley, mm. um, it's the- or uh, you know wild grass. But again, it's a it was a managed area, right? It was wild grass because the the Miwoks had kept it that way through controlled burning. So it was identified kind of early on um, by uh, by the mayor of San Francisco at the time, James Felon. With a P. That's <laughs> an unfortunate. It's not a, not a problem in Chicago, but. And he said, you know, hey, there's this wonderful, you know, th- there's this wonderful opportunity. Because it was a valley, you know, when, if you're a dam builder, on a steel horse you ride, uh, there's, 
you know, there are valleys that you look at and go, oh, wow, that just really needs a dam. You want it to be narrow, right? You want it to be narrow. You want it to be hard rock. You want it, you want the water to be kind of silt free. You want to, you, you're going to look at a thing and you're going to, I mean, this is what's so amazing that they didn't dam the Grand Canyon because there, there are so many wonderful places for a dam. How could they miss the opportunity? Uh, during this era in the United States, there were, there was this sort of, boom of like, wow, you know what we could do with these rivers? We could really screw them up by damming them. Think of how fun that would be to build. Nobody seemed to think about what the domino effects would be. You know, like you're changing everything about the, with that whole watershed. Well, they did in this case, they saw Ooh. immediately that, I mean, there, the preservationists said, are you crazy uh, building a dam in the Hetch Hetchy? In particular because, you know, to dam this valley is to uh, forever change its to, – to, to change well, the nature of the environment. You're right putting there. it underwater, among other things. Like uh, it, would, it would really change my valley if it were suddenly underwater. There you go. J- John Muir said, damn Hetch Hetchy. Damn Hetch Hetchy. As well damn for water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches. Wow. For no holier temple has ever been consecrated by the heart of man. John Muir didn't have to go so hard, but he did. He went very hard on damning Hetch Hetchy. Um, and T.R., uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I knew who you meant. He, rec- he recognized that... Um, that the environmental question in that moment, not just around Hetch Hetchy, but in general, was a fundamental one. And he said, um, well, he actually used the word fundamental, so I'm cribbing from him. But he said, the conservation of natural resources is the fundamental problem. Unless we solve that problem, it will avail us little to solve all others. Hmm. He's right. Like, today we realize this as a, as a well... Today, lots of us in our society recognize that there's a lot of existential threats, like climate change, and then there are things like gas prices that are not so much. But right. That's, that seems like an early recognition of this, that if, that if you don't preserve the environment, little else matters. And, and you, would not, you would not think, given uh, our rhetoric today, that you would be able to go back so far to, to the 19th century to find people that... But basically yeah. concurred, although... It, it, you couldn't get half of America to agree with Teddy Roosevelt today. Right. And he was a Republican. Uh, so this became an issue in the, in the U.S. Congress. And there was... Um, there were a lot of advocates for this kind of big project, and there was a lot of pushback against it. And some of it had to do with federal power. Uh, but in 1901... The Congress passed the Right-of-Way Act, which gave the Secretary of the Interior um, the right to grant water rights to municipalities like San Francisco to say, well, this, you know, the, the water here will, uh, will find its use serving the greater good by being freshwater for the city of San Francisco. The, the Secretary of the Interior at the time, Secretary Hitchcock, denied the request to, even though it was, you know, an act specifically to give his office the power to do it, felt that San Francisco was overreaching and... Turned him down. Turned him down. Huh. Um, but then 
The San Francisco earthquake in 1906 changed the equation because if you recall, the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake was the great fire of San Francisco. And if we just had a reservoir full of water, we could have put out these fires. That's the thing. There was a, there was a, a great awareness that San Francisco did not have access to enough water and whether or not Hetch Hetchy would have, um, given the fire departments and their horse-drawn <laughs> pumping trucks. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they were the limiting factor. I don't think it was a lack of water. San Francisco, I mean, they could have just bucket brigaded up from the bay. But it did change the the conversation around the damming of the Hetch Hetchy. Now, Roosevelt declared Yosemite in its entirety a national park in 1906. The dam had been proposed uh, already several times, um, but in 1906, the new Secretary of the Interior, James Garfield, the future president, son of the Mm. former president. Oh, what year are we in here? (laughs) (laughs) We're in now 1908. Okay. Slain President James Garfield's son is now Secretary of the Interior. Right. Uh, he avoided a Hunter Biden scenario and got an office job. He said, um, look, the Hetch Hetchy Valley is not unique. A lake would be even more beautiful than its meadow floor. Hey, hey, hey. Is that, is that how we're making these decisions? Whether just some guy with a mustache thinks uh, water looks better than grass? And then he says, and the... The hydrological power generated by the dam could pay for the dam. So it's not a question of cost. We'd be leaving money on the table. Hell, it pays for itself. Plus, water water is better than grass any day. So Garfield approves the project. Damn fool idea. Oh. Um, The joke acknowledger has logged on. I heard you make a pun, Ken. Now, at this point... um, we're in the first Roosevelt administration. But then, of course, as you know, as a student or as somebody who has memorized all the presidents and vice presidents. You were going to call me a student of American history and you were like, that's a little too much credit for you, flashcard boy. Let's not go that far. Who, is the, who, who succeeded uh, President Roosevelt in the presidential um, uh, leapfrog? Presidential leapfrog? Yeah. Is that what it was called? Presidential naked leapfrog. Who came after Roosevelt? Taft. That's right, Taft, America's largest president till recently. And Taft uh, appointed as Secretary of the Interior, Interior a man named Richard Ballinger, who was formerly the mayor of Seattle. Is Lake Ballinger up north named for him? Probably, right? Yeah. Weird. He was Secretary of the Interior. It's weird that a Seattle mayor would be a national figure in like 19... 19- 08 or whatever this is. Yeah, pretty crazy. And he was involved in a lot of scandals, uh, including one where he tilted up against Gifford uh, Pinchot, who was the head of the U.S. Forest Service in 1905. And Pinchot was a conservationist. You would not call Ballinger a preservationist by any means. Um, But during the Taft administration, there was a lot of... uh, there was a lot of sort of back and forth around whether or not that Hetch Hetchy Dam could proceed. And in 
1913, uh, Woodrow Wilson was the new president and he, wait a minute. That's right. That's true. When did, when did TR come back in? That's in the 1912 election, but he doesn't come become president. He run he ran he, for president against Wilson and Taft. There you go. Three presidents or future presidents running against each other. Real Royal rumble of a, of a presidential leapfrog. There you go. That's it. We, we didn't say election then. We, we still called it a presidential, <laughs> presidential leapfrog. 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 It's November again. Let's have a leapfrog. So in 1913, neither Roosevelt nor Taft make it through the, the final round of leapfrog. Wilson Lovely parting gifts. Uh, Wilson comes in and passes what's called the Raker Act. And the Raker Act said that um, that in a public works project like this, the city of San Francisco could argue that the water of the uh, Tuolumne River dammed behind the Hetch, Hetch, uh, dammed in the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir did function as the greatest good. Think of all the people who will be drinking it. Because at, at this point, it is a national park and there's a, there is, and Muir is really agitating for the fact that, look, if it's a national park and we cannot even preserve it uh, from being dammed and flooded. Yeah. And, and this is the, this is sort of the, the, the thing that instigated then the, the, the national park service. It came as a result of this, of this controversy in Congress. The argument of the Raker Act was that if you, if you used this water for the public good, it required that you never profit from it. You could not sell the water to someone for a profit, and no private company could make money. You, you being the municipality that, yeah. that received the grant for the water. Yeah, the water then that that flowed from the mountains would need to be provided as a public service to the citizens of San Francisco. And somehow through all of this, um, through all of this sort of political artfulness, the dam was constructed. It was designed by Michael O'Shaughnessy, who was an Irish, if you can believe it, engineer who was the city engineer of San Francisco, who also designed the Muni train Interesting. System. Yeah. And between 1919... I've never seen his dam, but I've been on his trains many times. Well, and there's also, there's a road named for him. There's a, there's a Muni station named for him. Uh, between 1919 and 1923, they constructed the O'Shaughnessy Dam, which backed up the Tuolumne River... Flooded the valley just like James Garfield's son flooded was the, so horny for. Flooded the Hetch Hetchy and created uh, an enormous reservoir. And then as part of the uh, building the dam, they built an aqueduct that ran. <laughs> I can't say it any other way. That's the only way to say aqueduct. Aqueduct. Are you like a Radiohead song? <laughs> the aqueduct. Bigger, taller, more water flowing. Uh, the aqueduct runs 167 miles, which is actually not that far, really, if you think about... Well, for an aqueduct, it's pretty enormous. I mean, we can't even build a... We can't build... We can't fix the West Seattle Bridge. Yeah, that's true. Uh, let's see. What is the longest aqueduct? This is something I, I could have looked up before doing the show. Longest aqueduct. Longest aqueduct is... The, uh, maybe this is not a surprise, the Admetabad Aqueduct, 
across the river Mahi. Where is this, Saudi? Oh, wait a minute. It says 142 kilometers. That's not longer than the 160. I think that, that oh, wait a minute. It looks like the Romans had... Uh, yeah, 280 yeah, miles. 200, 280 mile aqueducts. So well, 2,000 years ago, that was the record. Anyway, what I'm saying is it's not that big of a deal. So confirmed. Confirmed by the internet. You're really down on this aqueduct. <laughs> uh, so the O'Shaughnessy Dam is, um, you know, not an especially enormous dam. Uh, Initially it was 227 feet tall, but then in the thirties, they built, uh, they continued to build it. They built, they built a penthouse. They built a lighthouse on top of a penthouse. (laughs) They raised it to 312 feet and it flooded the Hetch Hetchy Valley. Uh, and the Hetch Hetchy, because it was inaccessible, and then additionally, because they flooded all the best parts of it, it remains a very unvisited uh, spot. All the places you could have used to hike into it are now either underwater or blocked by a dam. Yeah. So there, or both. whereas Yosemite nearby has, has so many visitors that you have to make a reservation. In one sense, the reason that California or the reason that San Francisco's water remains so clean and pure is that nobody's over there because there's no, there's a lot less reason. Although the, some of those tall waterfalls survive, there's a lot less reason to visit the Hetch Hetchy Valley. Is there any sense of what the ecological toll was? I mean, you know, in our part of the country, a lot of dams from that era are getting blown up because uh, it was, wasn't great for the salmon, which was a pretty important species. Well, you know, the the um the Hetch Hetchy Valley right on the other side of Yosemite is the Great Basin, um which is, you know, an a, an enormous area in the United States encompassing Nevada, half of Utah, Oregon, Idaho, and parts of California that um, godforsaken hole in the middle of America. <laughs> it's a godforsaken hole that also has the highest point in the continental United States right. in Mount Whitney and the lowest point right next and door. Lowest, and they're a hundred miles apart, Death Valley. Uh, but as a Great Basin, of course, it has no. Uh, it it's not part of any watershed that that that's what's so great about it. That drains to an ocean. It just eats all the water. It just goes down into a, a big hole. No, it goes down at all the lawns of uh, Orem, Utah. <laughs> Um, in this case, yeah, the, the, although it's not like a Northwest dam on the Columbia river that, that, um, that restricts a billion salmon and, and ruins an entire uh, ecosystem. It is a, um, it was regarded as an environmental catastrophe by preservationists and it was, it has never not been a source of contention. And one of the reasons is that. As they built the aqueduct, aqueduct down from uh, the O'Shaughnessy Dam, the city of San Francisco ran out of money <laughs> right before they got to the city. <laughs> they're like in San Mateo, and they're like, eh. And in 1925, they built the pipe right up to a, a pumping station that was basically owned by um, the, not Spring Valley Water Company, but by w- what became Pacific Gas and Electric. Oh, okay. And so because they didn't 
because it was a temporary measure, they said, listen, we're just going to have them pump it into the city until next fiscal year when we can finish the pipe. They ended up contracting with what became PG&E to pump it that final bit of the way, which then gave PG&E the ability to charge money for the water in complete violation of the Raker Act, which everyone at the time recognized and protested. Wait a minute, that's in violation of the Raker Act. And ever since then, a main complaint about the Hetch Hetchy system has been that it is uh, because of the Raker, I mean, the Raker Act is why it was able, you know, why they were able to build it around the, the fact that it was in a protected park. Yeah. And yet we're still getting, and by we, I mean the American people in the form of San Franciscans are being charged for the water. So people have been arguing since it was built to tear it down. Um, and over the course of the last century, um, a lot of strange bedfellows have kind of uh, climbed into bed with one another after a game of naked leapfrog. little foreplay going on between them. Now, what happened is downstream from the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in the 30s, um, or I'm sorry, in the 20s, so even as they were, uh, before they'd even brought Hetch Hetchy online, they started building a larger dam downstream, not in the beautiful canyon, uh, but on the Tuolumne River, but down lower. And they built a much larger dam called the Don Pedro Dam. And you would think, it being called the Don Pedro Dam, that it would be named after some Spanish land grant holder. But in fact, it was named after... Somebody's cute burrow. No, it was named after a Frenchman named Pierre Saint-Savin, <laughs> who was responsible for cultivating wine, sparkling wine. And uh. they called him Don Pedro because... <laughs> and that's... The dam is named after Don Pedro. Being a ranchero is just a state of mind. So they built an enormous dam called the Don Pedro Dam um, in the 20s. And then in the 70s, they went downstream of the old Don Pedro Dam, and they built an even bigger new Don Pedro Dam. Do these just flood the old ones every time they build a new one? That's what's incredible. The old Don Pedro Dam is under, is hundreds of feet underwater it's in the a, reservoir held back by the new Don Pedro Dam. It's not a very good dam if like a hundred feet of water are going above it at all times. It's I like just, the, the minimal thing a dam should do is dam. I super duper duper want to go scuba diving in the Don Pedro Reservoir and see the enormous Don Pedro Dam. Like you, you talk about like flooding the the ancient Egyptian temples with the Aswan Dam. Yeah. You've, you're actually flooding subsequent or, you know, prior dams with your new dam. It's really insulting to the old dam. So a lot of people, even in the time said, why did we need to build the O'Shaughnessy Dam and flood the Hatch Hatchy when the Don Pedro Dam is bigger and further down. It's also on the Tuolumne? It's just further down? Further down. Huh. But the the water that goes to San Francisco is through the aqueduct from Hetch Hetchy. So it, it never- Bypasses. It bypasses Don Pedro. And by the time the water gets to the Don Pedro Dam, like right just recently, 
uh, the Don Pedro Dam has an advisory now that you're not supposed to fish in it because there are PCBs oh. in the water. So the so the water in uh, Lake Don Pedro is used to irrigate all of the farmland around Modesto. I mean, it's part of the 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 Central Valley water system that we hear so much about. That's you know that's part of the water wars that we described Ag- early on. Agricultural and. And Hetch Hetchy is is up above it, right? Like a, a like a separate, pristine universe above it. But the argument has been ever since that we should tear down the Hetch Hetchy, restore the watershed, restore the park to its former grandeur, and use Lake Don Pedro for all of the hydroelectric and. Um, and to water and San Francisco. Water water needs of San Francisco. Um, and that fight found a very strange bedfellow in the Reagan Alex Jones. Uh, Alex Jones, you're almost in the Reagan administration, Secretary of the Interior, Donald Hodel. Oh, post Watt. Yeah, post Watt. And Hodel came out in favor of exploring, tearing down the, the Hetch Hetchy Dam. And in fact, um, George Bush I actually appointed a commission to, and funded it, to explore tearing down the Hetch Hetchy Dam. And there's a lot of, you know, we don't, we don't ascribe to conspiracy theories here at the Omnibus, but they're uh, we think they're all untrue, even the ones that contradict the other ones. There's a uh, there's a kind of conventional wisdom within the conservationist versus preservationist environmental side that suggests that Hodel was trying to divide the environmental movement by proposing a radical preservationist policy mm. in order to get all the mainstream Democrats to come out against it. And then he could claim within the, you know, you think about the Reagan administration's uh, Department of the Interior, they weren't about restoring rivers and tearing down hydroelectric plants. Don't seem out of character. That was not their vibe. So, uh, so you know, it was a, it was it seen, I think, in the in the time as a as a way to discredit a cynical tactic. Right? Yeah, right. To turn to turn it on its head. And uh, when have you ever seen a uh, a Republican preservationist. It's a rare, it's a rarer combination of factors, but the city of San Francisco has resolutely resisted the idea of tearing down the Hetch Hetchy. Um, it, uh, there was a proposition in 2012 proposition F, which was just to provide $8 million to study tearing down the Hetch Hetchy Dam or to study the Hetch Hetchy uh, restoration of the habitat, not even tearing it down. The idea was to poke a hole in the bottom of it and just let the water drain out. Don't, don't, you know, don't bother the hundreds of millions of dollars it would take to, to tear it down. But it does drain the valley. It would drain the valley. Um, uh, The, the residents of San Francisco uh, resoundly rejected Proposition F. Maybe the rest of California should get to vote on that. Maybe it shouldn't just be San Francisco city limits, you know, it's everybody's valley that's getting flooded, San Francisco. Well, in 1999, the Sierra Club, now swinging in on a preservationist vine, sued, um, I guess, 
I guess they formed a group called Restore Hetch Hetchy, and then in two, it wasn't until 2015 that they sued uh, based on the California Constitution, uh, saying that you know basically Hetch Hetchy was in violation of it. But a, but a judge rejected their suit because the California Constitution wasn't adopted until 1928. So the Hetch Hetchy predated the California Constitution. So at the present moment, the Hetch Hetchy uh, continues to provide San Francisco with its electricity. Although, you know, the, the, they have started to reduce the, the amount of hydroelectric they produce during the day um, because there's so much solar power now in oh, California wow. that, that, uh, that now hydroelectric's the bad, they can draw it back. Yeah. The but, bad regressive energy, but they let the, they let the water through at night because you know, that's when the, the solar power that's, sees a dip. That's when Jack Nicholson won't notice. It's a tiny little dip. I don't know why. I don't know why it would go okay. down during the night. Uh, so Hetch Hetchy still, um, it's, it's still illegally hanging in there. There are a lot of dams in the Northwest that the argument for tearing them down is, uh, it has very little to do with, uh, the like restoration of the natural beauty and a lot more to do with salmon runs, right? Yeah. We see the salmon as, as super important to our regional identity and, and they're in big trouble. Like they're in, big they're trouble. in crisis and people are considering big, bold solutions. Yeah. If your son would stop fishing for them on the open ocean he threw his back he uh they only they're only allowed to catch hatchery salmon and he threw back his wild one it, i'm sure it's spawning somewhere right now but someone made the interesting observation that if we drained the hetch hetchy uh and the grassy the beautiful grassy meadow that offended james garfield so much was restored it would almost immediately become a forest again because the there's no the Miwok Indians wouldn't be there doing controlled burning, and then it this is would, not this is not an employment program for local California indigenous people. <laughs> we need you to come build a build a Potemkin village and use your you know your traditional ways to keep the valley floor clean. We're against trees. Don't let if you see a tree growing at any at any cost. Get rid of that. See, you're splitting the environmental movement, Ken. You're pitting the tree, the tree people and the grass people. <laughs> tree huggers and grass huggers. I've always been a grass hugger. And that concludes O'Shaughnessy Dam. Entry 877.EX1508. Certificate number 53464. In the omnibus. Future Links, thank you for listening to the damn show. Uh, it was full of damn information <laughs> full of a lot of damn facts in the damn show uh you can uh find out more about the damn show and the damn facts uh by looking up at omnibus project on facebook and at ken jennings and at john roderick on twitter uh john really shouldn't be there not even at night when when solar makes uh electricity dip especially not at night no that's uh, when I have the hardest time not replying angrily to people that don't understand. You should have a seven-minute uh, gap a day when you're allowed and you allow yourself to go on Twitter. What if I got an anonymous account and I went on telling people they were wrong 
And then, I'm a big fan of John Rodericks, and you suck. <laughs> no, no, just telling people they're wrong about about other stuff, not having anything to do with me. I mean, the whole fun of being on Twitter is to tell people they're wrong. And then that account got like a million followers because it was so funny and cool and smart. We love wrong guy. People try, hey, hey, people try to guy. get you a. People try to ask if you have a band they can sign. People ask if you want to start a podcast. I wonder if at wrong guy is available. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty, <laughs> but all those like super easy handles were like taken in the early months of Twitter by somebody who never posted. Yeah. So like at wrong guy is going to be like, hey, what's up, Twitter? Just trying this out. No. And then no Nothing posts since ever then. Again. No followers. So actually at wrong guy. Oh, wait. Wrong guy with one G. <laughs> Wouldn't that be more like wrong Ui? Is a guy named Rafael Pereira uh, in Rio de Janeiro. Now let's see wrong guy with two G's. I'm noisily opening mail, sorry. Wrong guy with two G's. Oh my god, it's a musician. He has two followers. He joined in November 2008. And, and his his posts, uh, his first post, Ken, you're going to love this. He has three posts. <laughs> this is what I called it. His first post is, Wasting time <laughs> now, why the repeated E's? Why the repeated silent E? He's wasting Puzzling. time. And then his second post is friends, question mark, question mark. And then I his, think the answer is no. And you do not have friends. It's over. Wrong guy is over. Oh, I hope he's I'll, all right. I'll give you $1 million for at wrong guy. He's at Carnival right now. Wrong guy. He Apparently, he lives in Nepal, which is interesting. Okay. It sounds like you're over there in the mail mail bin i'm opening stuff noisily you can uh, email us at omnibus project sorry the omnibus project at gmail.com but should you want to send us physical items of course email doesn't work for that we don't have a 3d printer on the other end uh so you can send us mail at p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 we don't live in shoreline but our p.o box does we both once lived in shoreline that's correct well, yeah, no, that's true. When did you not live in Shoreline? I lived in Edmonds. And oh. I'm not sure my when I was little, did my parents ever have an apartment in the Shoreline city limits? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. So we, I'm the only one keeping it real, having lived in Shoreline. Yeah, keeping it real in Innes Arden. Uh, Tyler from Vancouver Island says he wanted to send us something that wasn't a severed foot. And it's true. This does not appear to be a severed foot, which is always nice when you're opening the good, mail. Good, and good. And it's not a severed foot. He, used, he has one of those wood-burning kits, apparently. This is nice. Look at Tell this. me more. He is, this is now a... Oh, here comes the lightning storm. He has now made us this attractive plaque. In this house, we are pro-vaccine, anti-Hitler. <laughs> where are you going to hang it? I mean, where couldn't you hang it? Front, front lawn, right? Put that right on the front door. Uh, that's just going to go right here in our omnibus, uh, like super, super wall. Oh, wait, it has he, both of our college diplomas. He also sent you some guitar picks, which I think I. Cool. I think I threw away the envelope prematurely. Where are the guitar picks at? Oh, no, the lightning's back. Because he says. He has a guitar business uh, where they make microtonal guitar necks, and here are the pics with, in fact, the logo of microtonalnecks.com. So if anybody out there has been listening to the show Whoa. thinking, as soon as this ends, I'm going to go buy some 
microtonal guitar um, next, but I don't know where. Uh, good news. You, I'm glad you stayed through the outro. Microtonalnext.com. His friend David both designed the logo and introduced him to Omnibus. Here I go. Here's also a note from Sharon, who sent... She's the one who sent us the Star Trek fonts. Yeah. That was fun. She uh, she feels bad that she has never sent you anything that you would love as much as I loved the old-timey Star Trek fonts she ought on, to feel bad. on three and a half inch disc. So she has sent you a t-shirt. Oh, she shouldn't feel bad anymore. For the Society of Honorable Indiana Troglodytes. <laughs> it's an unfortunate acronym. Um, I love these three guitar picks that I have here now. She says she doesn't know if it'll fit you, but it's an XL. Well, then it will fit me. I don't know that it would fit John, although he could use it as an incentive to lose weight to fit into it. Ouch, Sharon. Jeez. Um, <laughs> Christmas. Here's your XL shirt if you ever, like, lose some pounds, tubby. <laughs> Um, I like the purple. It's a good color. She says if you don't want to wear it, you, maybe you could make it as a quilt or a pillow. Society of Honorable Indiana Troglodytes, 1995, with a map of the state of Indiana. It's busy enough that for a second I thought it said Honorable Indian Troglodytes, and I thought it was a little bit problematic. What's weird is that the ele- the, the graphic element behind it is an outhouse with a door falling off. Did you notice that? It's an outhouse... It's kind of the shape of the state of Indiana. Now that I think about it, Indiana's kind of in the shape of an outhouse with the door falling off. So what? Is, what how does a troglodyte and a uh, and an outhouse? Well, and like, a sophisticated why, Indiana has a well, nice outhouse with a with a oh, well hung door. I see. It's only the ill mannered Indianans, the Hoosiers, who have a uh, who have a a badly kept outhouse. Sharon also gives her phone number if you want to call and yell at me for sending something stupid. Oh. So her number is area <laughs> co- No, I'm just kidding. Thank you so much, Sharon and Tyler. Uh, the rest of you, please get on the stick and send us weird stuff or else the outro won't be 15 minutes long. Get on the stick. And I know you, you would hate that if we got out of here in, you know, in two to three minutes. You, you are literally getting on another airplane after we're done. He shows up at my house today to do the show. Mindy dropped him off, which has never happened before. Never. But you're standing on the steps with like two suitcases. And I was like, and I was going to move in. I was like, oh, hey, Ken. And you said, yeah, well, Mindy could come back and get me, or you could take me to the airport. And I did like Bambi eyes. You can call me Thumper if you well, want to. Well, it's on the way to the airport. Somebody could easily pick me up. Yeah. No, it's me. But I'll be in the Sky Club you. sooner if uh, if you drop me off. <laughs> um, the uh, Facebook group exists for your uh, complaining pleasure. Go whine about how the outros are too long at uh, by finding the Futurelings on Facebook or <laughs> other fora, Discord, presumably. Uh, there's a subreddit, I think. Uh, and of course, uh, most importantly, the omnibus would not exist today, or at least it would not be an extremely profitable venture, and we'd just be doing it uh, as an ego, fun ego boost. That's right, like or, everything or, else we do. Or because I need a ride to the airport. <laughs> hey, let's pretend to do a podcast for five years so I can get a free ride to the airport <laughs> in summer of 2022. Uh, the show is only sustainable because of the kind support of our Patreon Donors like Kathy, who suggested this episode. I think there is a not insignificant number of um, of our supporters who are unkind. And also donate? Yeah. Like, who are they unkind to? Pets? 
I just feel Spouses? like they there there might even be some grudge donators who are like, I'll give five dollars to these dopes just so they keep embarrassing themselves. Counterpoint. The donors are actually the kind good ones. And if you have been listening for years thinking about donating, you're actually maybe not such an enlightened person. Oh. Maybe you're not such a beneficent citizen here of Shame. passenger here on spaceship Earth. Shame. Right. You're wearing the change you forged in life. Uh, and the only way for you to avoid the doom that certainly awaits you, Ebenezer Scrooge, is to go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and uh, start to peruse the amazing benefits available to those who uh, uh, those the kind in heart those, the kind of heart those of, of, uh, of enlightened souls who have chosen to support Omnibus to those of you who have chosen to support Omnibus we wish you many goods and cheese and not to the rest of you few goods and no cheese whatsoever government cheese from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long you survive on government cheese or indeed how long our civilization survives. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.